Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. And in this podcast, I am very happy to welcome along Jennifer Fraser, PhD, who's speaking to us from all the way over in Vancouver on the west coast of Canada. So welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Well, I'm delighted to have you uh, with us today because we're going to be looking at a subject which I think everybody who's listening in has probably had some experience of in some form. So we will get into the detail of that. So a little bit about Jen. She is an author and educator. Her book, Teaching Bullies, is an alarming story of how the authorities didn't deal effectively with bullying in a school environment. And it is a call to action for those who want to protect children from bullying, especially when it's done by teachers and coaches. And one of the main reasons why I wanted to get Jen onto the podcast is because of that area where we as coaches are responsible for talking and reacting and helping children and perhaps we may ourselves uh, go over the line but also in other aspects as well so I've had a lot of messages ahead of this podcast uh, sharing stories about their people's experience of being bullied in the workplace being bullied in their sports environments and perhaps even at university so others have said to me they think bullies steal happiness and they're not happy themselves and want to hurt someone else. And this is obviously a very complex area and emotionally charged. Well, my first question is, I think we need to understand what is meant by a bully. So I ask this because I wonder how many definitions there are. Well, I've been working for since since the publication of Teaching Bullies. I've been working in the field and working with coaches or people who had sport organizations it's not just sports, just like you said with your messages. It, sh- it shows up throughout all fabrics of our life. And bullying is described when, it, when we talk about children, we say it's an epidemic. And so I think that I truly believe that we can make change. And the reason why I use neuroscience is it's kind of funny. On the one hand, neuroscience confirms ancient practices. So for example, We've known forever since the start of humanity that our bodies are meant to move and that one of the best things we can do for our bodies is exercise, have fitness and play sports. And it's actually one of the best things you can do for your brain. And that's just ancient wisdom. We know that. Well, neuroscience confirms it in really powerful and interesting ways. They can look on non-invasive brain scans and see that fitness actually does amazing things to improve children's academics. And that every single time you do something that's healthy for your heart, like go for a jog, you're doing something extremely good for your brain. And then contrast that with what we do in education, for example, when we want our students to write a test and show us their knowledge, we sit them still for three hours and the brain is pooling down to their feet. Well, that means that they they can't show us their true knowledge because they're not getting oxygenated blood up into their brains. So this is the place where I try to come at, well, bullying is really destructive. We know that. How can we change it? How can we use this new neuroscientific knowledge gathered from brain scans where they can see actually what's happening within our skulls and and change how we interact with 
children or in the workplace or in our families even. Given what you've just said, and we've got all this science behind it, uh, people are going to be listening in and they're going to say, right, so it's about how I feel. So how is the brain uh, reacting to that? Why are we feeling bullied? Um, it's, it's, that, it's something that you and I have talked about before. It's, it's the mix-up that we seem to have with adults. We don't make the same mistake with children, but with adults, we suddenly get confused and say, we don't know where, the, where to draw the line between demanding and demeaning. Now, the research is very clear that a demanding approach, so they would refer to it as scaffolding and challenge. So a high expectation environment, if a coach establishes it or a teacher or an employer in the workplace, high expectations, high in challenge, that is going to create really high performance. But you have to scaffold it, which means especially with children or youth, you have to never make them feel like they can't do something. So you have to support and guide them in incremental ways, each step of the way so that they continue to have increased success. The brain learns, they know, by making mistakes. So if you flip it around and you look at the demeaning approach, that would be an employer or a parent or a coach or a teacher who is constantly telling you that the mistake you're making means you're a failure or you have a bad character or you're you know, insert the homophobic slur if you want. So that is not good for brains. Brains in particular of adolescents are unbelievably sensitized to social standing and to um, social interactions. If you really want to hurt the brain of a teenager in very serious and lasting ways, the best way to do it is to shame them publicly or humiliate them or ostracize them. Because the brain reacts to that in, in very, it devastates the brain. And this is documented in peer-reviewed, replicated, consensus-built science of the highest level. And every single time these major players like Dr. Martin Tyker at Harvard or Dr. William Copeland at Duke University, every time they go out there and do some more of these major studies, they get constant confirmation that almost surprises them that the brains of children who've been bullied, even by peers, look the same on brain scans. They suffer similar types of damage as the brains of children who've been physically and sexually abused in childhood. In a sense, uh, I spent a lot of people listening in, uh, looking at their own behaviours in terms of coaching and teaching. I'm probably thinking quite worried. They're quite worried that they've probably, and I know I've done it myself, they've said demeaning things, thinking it is uh, just to uh, a bit of banter, perhaps, to um, help agitate, charge up the situation. And actually, it's not demanding, it's demeaning. So is it possible that we're inadvertently bullying, as opposed to, right, I'm definitely going out there to make someone feel unhappy, uh, because I want them to feel unhappy? I think that you've got right to the heart of the matter. And I mean, I don't know a single parent, myself included, who hasn't done things with their children that they regret. And we love our kids more than any kid. And we still trip up and we yell at them or we might say something hurtful and we go and apologize. And we, we have to tell them that we messed up and we're sorry and we might even be ashamed. And what I've experienced as a teacher too, if you mess up as a teacher and you go and apologize to the child, I've had to apologize to a parent before and say that 
you just can't believe that you said that comment or you were desensitized to something about the child. And I find that kids and parents are very open and very forgiving to educators, whether it's a coach or a teacher who messes up because that's human. Bullying is very different. Bullying usually results in absolute denial on the part of the person that does it. And that's why I think it's interesting what you just said, because you're already acknowledging, oh, sometimes I've done that. And I now I'm thinking maybe that was hurtful. I didn't mean it to be hurtful. But now that I'm being told, hey, actually, that might that might be actually harmful to a child's brain or a teenager's brain because they're in this particular phase of development. I have to be more conscious. I have to be more careful. That's not how a person who um, uses a lot of bullying tactics will respond. What you find with those types of people is it's like what some people wrote to you and they said, oh, these people aren't happy. If you look at it in a psychological framework or a neuroscience framework, what you learn is that that person has been trained quite likely. They've been on the receiving end of a lot of treatment that themselves of that, maybe from a coach or a parent or a teacher. They grew up with it. They normalized it. They can't actually even really see it for what it is anymore. And that's, that's really tough because it makes it hard to change. But what's really exciting to me is you can still change even if you've been really had that tr type of training hammered into you. So we've got to retrain ourselves to think carefully about what we say and then acknowledge when we make mistakes. Obviously, there are cases when bullies are always apologizing, yet they are trying to apologize knowing that they're going to bully again and they think they're getting away with it. But for more, the more sensible amongst us, one hopes we are clear on what that looks like. So some of the, some of the things that you would say to people that you're working with, these are types of expressions or language which teenager or a young person or any person, in fact, that you are coaching or teaching would find uh, demeaning. In your experience, what would those sorts of expressions or actions might be? Well, the teachers at my son's school that multiple students reported on, um, I was asked by the headmaster to take eight testimonies, which I'd never done before. Um, but students won't just speak to anybody. They usually speak to someone that they trust. I had that relationship with students. And so at the headmaster's request, I took these testimonies. And I found it really um, very interesting because that was my first introduction to how bullying behavior unfolds. And I don't know if you've read a lot in the UK about, uh, I'm sure you have, because it was just such major news, but Another example of this would be Harvey Weinstein. And what's interesting to me about Harvey Weinstein, and it, it helps us really understand that these people that behave this way, it's almost obsessive compulsive. They can't help themselves. Like I actually have a, a lot of pity and compassion almost for these people because it's so obviously to me a, an illness. And so Harvey Weinstein says the same things and does the same behavior over and over again. There's nothing new about it or original about it with each victim. And he does it for 20 or 30 years. He's compelled to behave this way, knowing that it could cost him his family, his wife, his career. He still does it. And it's the same bathrobe and the same exact scripted lines. It's like he's trapped in a terrible play that he can't get out of. And when I listened to these students at my son's school, there was, I, I took testimonies from four boys and four girls, not including my own son. Um, and 
they talked, even though they were, they were grade 10, all the way up to second year university, they repeated the exact same words used, the same lines, the same behavior. And that's when I realized how much it's just a pattern. And so the language that was used, and I can't even repeat it on your podcast, because it's that bad. They were just, I will give you a sort of refined version. They were calling the, the boys effing retards and effing homophobic slur starts with a P. <laughs> and um, I, I thought to myself, you know, it was really amazing to me that educational administrators, I could understand why the headmaster and the chaplain and the board of governors, you know, they had a lot of motivation to cover up. What I couldn't understand was the educational authorities at the highest level where I live. They also um, dismissed and denied that this was serious conduct. They, in fact, faulted the students. They said the students were too sensitive and the students shouldn't have listened to the teacher's obscenities. <laughs> I mean, you got to laugh because it's so crazy. So if you imagine on the playground, if you had a, a boy on the playground calling other boys an effing homophobic slur and effing retards, there is no educational authority that would say that is to motivate them. That boy is feeling so passionate about those children's uh, sport experience or academic experience that he's really pushing them with that terminology. Well, how is it possible then when we're talking about adults, we create this total doublespeak and we say, this is to motivate and this is to, um, it's, I speak this way because I'm so passionate. The idea of passion then sometimes causes bullying to happen because you are saying, well, I want you to, sh I want to show that I really care and I really care about our performance because often that happens. You're bullied in and it's, it's that way around. It's not actually someone trying to take someone's happiness away. It's they say that I, if, in order for me to retain my job, this is the most effective way. So actually we're cut, we're going into another sphere of why they're doing it. Is that right? Well, I think that there's certainly people out there who were treated that way themselves, as children in particular, and they believe that it's why they were successful. So once you have that kind of a mindset, it gets really tricky to argue with them and say, well, actually the research shows that that's not going to make a successful athlete or a high-performing team. There's no research, reputable, replicated, peer reviewed research that will back up an abusive approach gets the highest performance. What there is, though, is a very large body of research that says the opposite. The more you support athletes or students in a music program or sports or at, workplace, at the workplace, the more you are supportive and empathic and you're responding to them in very personalized ways, Each you have a certain method of speaking even depending on your athlete or child that is going to get you spectacular results every time. And so I just don't understand, you know, if it's true that a bullying approach is going to jolt somebody into high performance, then why is there no research that I would, know, I would think that uh, the argument that those people who then still continue is that, uh, first of all, they're, they're, not, they're not made aware of the research. And secondly, they have... I think it's confirmation bias that uh, they won't they won't listen to it because they say they can they can find ways to put it down because they say it doesn't apply to me and then they'll say well look I've been successful and I've been through this and also maybe they're looking at others and thinking that 
certainly I would think in the in the playground situation, pushy parents want to push their children to be more successful, and they they're scared of that moment when they're not pushing them. And so it's that's a lot of things going on there, and they won't listen to the research. So I suppose the challenge is, how do you get the message to them? Well, I think that's actually an extremely good point. And the one thing that I would say is, I think that they come by this mindset honestly. I think it's really fair to have that mindset in our world right now, because we've all been trained in what I call the bullying and abuse paradigm. So if you've grown up in the world where basically adults will say to you, you can't bully, don't bully, but you can when you're an adult. And in actual fact, it'll give you power and it will give you prestige. And the reason I say that is because all we have to do is take a look at politics and we'll see that the people in our culture who have the most powerful positions and the most prestigious positions will very openly, very publicly use bullying tactics. Um, there's a great deal of discussion about that right now in the world because it's it's so dominant on the political front. But what we have to do is, you know, I mean, this sounds so extreme, but it's actually not. If you go back to um, the work of psychiatrist Alice Miller, she wrote a book in the 1980s, and it's about poisonous pedagogy. So she's writing about how when you're trained and raised in a bullying and abuse paradigm, you come to believe that it's the only way, and you believe that it will give you power and success. And just like you say, you, you don't really care what the research says because you believe in it like you believe in a religion. And it's that's why it can be very difficult to change people's minds. However, what ultimately happens is a great deal of destruction and unhappiness. And these people, like if you look at someone like Harvey Weinstein again, or Dr. Larry Nassar with USA Gymnastics, or well, it's Boy Scouts of America, Boy Scouts of Canada, Alpine Canada. I could give you a million examples, and I'm sure the UK has them too. I know there's been a, an explosion of very elite schools being exposed as being highly abusive. And I've actually written a chapter on that in my newest book. And I think it's a really good example of what's happened to all of us. Like all of us are in it. We're all locked into this paradigm. And that's why it's such a struggle to get out. And that's why bullying is epidemic in our youth, because we train them in this manner. They don't come by it, honestly. Um, the neuroscience shows that children's brains are wired for empathy. They are wired to care and be concerned with other people's mindsets. And it's a survival strategy. If you want to survive in humanity, you need to know other people's motivations, intentions, and feelings, or you're not going to last too long. So we have to ask ourselves, what has happened to our children's brains that their natural impulse to empathy gets derailed and becomes a bullying mindset in some cases? And then they, some adults grow up to continue this behavior. Is it the case that, um, now just what you're saying is that some people are actually predisposed to being bullied? Well, no, not so much. What, I, what I'm trying to say is that we're all born wired for empathy. We have to ask ourselves then, what happens to that? Why don't we grow up to be incredibly empathic adults? Uh, and, and I think of empathy as, as sort of the polar opposite to a bullying mindset. Bullies, and I don't like to use that term because I, people aren't bullies. They can behave in a bullying way, but it doesn't become who they are. They are many things. But bullying behavior is the opposite of empathy. And in the research, they'll refer to somebody who uses bullying behavior as callous, unempathic. They don't care what the victim is feeling. So 
for a really good example of this, if you want to think brain and how the brain works, is cyberbullying. Now, cyberbullying is reaches up a kind of level of cruelty and harshness that you don't see in face-to-face bullying. And the research says the reason why is because the person using the bullying behavior or abusive language or whatever can't see the pain that they're causing at all. All they see is their screen. And the human brain is wired to acknowledge and see other people's pain and have a reaction to it. So it's pretty it's pretty hard work on the part of society to take that natural impulse out of people and eliminate it. In a cyberbully case, this has opened up a completely new type of bullying, which is not reactive to the person you're looking at that person. In a, say, a school situation, teacher to a child or a child to a child, they can actually see the reaction. Now, are you suggesting that, just putting the cyberbullies to the side, that they they see the reaction and then they get some satisfaction out of the reaction or they they just do it and they're not looking at the reaction? I think it might be both. I mean, it's quite interesting that, you know, there's a lot of really interesting work um, on narcissism and bullying. So again, going back to it's an illness. And if we think about it as an illness, then for me anyways, my next thought is, okay, well, if this person is unwell, how do we get them better? You know, I don't feel anger or a desire to see them hurt. I certainly don't feel an impulse to see people who use this behavior. I don't have an impulse to bully them, but that's what our system does. So if you think about it, like, and again, this is part of why we're so locked into the paradigm. What do we do to somebody like Harvey Weinstein? We enable him for 30 years. So there were many people involved in knowing what he was doing, and they either supported him because their job was on the line. They supported him because he was such a talented producer and made a lot of money. They supported him because they were terrified they'd be the next in line. I mean, who knows what their motivation was, but there was a lot of people that supported him. Now, prior to his fall from grace, someone like Meryl Streep referred to him as a god. And this is typical in bullying situations. Bullying individuals are often extremely talented and very smart and very charismatic, and they create cult followings oftentimes. So it gets really confusing for our brain to understand that that same person could also be someone who's very destructive and harmful. Like our brain just can't put those two things together. And I mean, this is why um, Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is still such a powerful idea that, that helps us understand that a person can be like Dr. Larry Nassar, totally supported by University of Michigan and USA Gymnastics, despite the fact that they received so many reports that he was abusing children. And, you know, it just baffles the mind on one level that this is perpetually in our society allowed. And then all of a sudden the person falls from grace. So Harvey Weinstein, he's no longer a god. He suddenly crosses the line and he becomes like a demon. And what do we want to do? We want to bully him. So we shame him. We blame him for his conduct. And then we ostracize him. You know, we scapegoat the bully or the bullying individual. And we say to ourselves very primitively, we go, phew, all that evil is out of society now. Everybody's safe. We got, we drove him out of the cave and the community. And now we're all okay again, because we sure had nothing to do with that. Well, that doesn't make sense because These individuals can't do what they do unless there's a large body of people around them that support the behavior. 
Which makes me now think this is part of what your drive is, is to create better education, better understanding of what bullying is, and maybe not to identify yourself as a bully, or maybe even you're being bullied, is actually to identify others who are using this behavior and then start to make the right sort of moves to support that person. I'm suggesting uh, I might be wrong because if it's an illness, they need to be supported and shown that they need to stop bullying. Now we could go on. There's a, there's a whole different line of going, how do you punish bullies and that sort of thing? So I want to go into a different question though, is that I want to flip it around to the, the person who's being bullied. And often it is said that if you are bullied, bully the bully back or fight fire with fire. There's sort of two questions here. Can the bully, the bullied person escape being bullied or do they need to directly take on the bully? I think that's a really, really good question. It's an exciting question for me because I'm all about how do we solve this problem? And I think the solution lies in educating our children. So starting from five years old, right on, like what my big project is, I call it alpha brain, is I want to see kids educated about their brains. And I especially want them to understand that if there is an adult in their world, or a child, or anyone who is bullying them, they need to know what to do, because they need to know how serious it is for their brain. So, and the best way to think about this, and I think coaches really um, get this and understand it, is we didn't know before that when you had a concussion, when an athlete got a concussion, that their brain was actually hurt in a very serious way because we couldn't see it. Now, we weren't being bad people. We just couldn't see it. But now that we know, now that non-invasive brain scan technology has shown us that concussions actually are very serious and they can even lead to an athlete's death, there's a 17-year-old girl playing rugby in Canada and Ontario who died, and they've created a special law in her name um, about concussions and concussion treatment because she died because she was put back into play or wanted to go back into play and, um, and had a concussed brain. So I feel like we need to teach our kids right from the get-go that bullying can cause a concussion in their brain. It's really, really serious. And If adults do it and adults have been trained in a bullying paradigm, we have to start with our young ones to say, okay, you got to help the adults out. If they are using bad language, if they are using favoritism, if they are threatening you or belittling you or any of these types of bullying behaviors, you need to let them know. And just maybe if it's school, you just walk them right down to the principal's office, sit them down, tell the principal what happened, and everybody's going to work harder to not let that happen again. You're going to really help your teacher or your parent understand understand that this is unacceptable because it hurts brains. But I think if a teacher slapped a child across the face, we would have no problem saying, oh, that's really hurtful. That hurts the body. I can see the marks and I'm I'm responding empathically to the pain the child is in. I'm going to get medical help, etc. Well, the research shows that if a teacher said to a kid, you're stupid, they're doing a lot more damage to that kid's brain than they could ever do to the kid by slapping them across the face. That's the change we have to make. So yes, what can you do if you're being bullied? Well, all of us adults, especially people like us who work with children or youths, we need to get educated and we need to educate them so that we have this really, really um, caring way to catch the behavior, no matter who does it. If kids are doing it, the adults need to step in and say, okay, hang on, let's have a team meeting. Why is this happening? You know, 
what are we doing? It's really destructive. Same thing if the adult behaves that way. Now, I can, there are a few alarm bells ringing here, and you probably see why <laughs> is that uh, any coach or teacher who has maybe not selected a child or the child in their own mind doesn't feel that they've been favored by the coach, and the coach could have been doing completely sensible things, then says, I feel I've been bullied. And then they, they march their teacher down to the principal and say, I think the teacher has been bullying me. I, I sense that there are dangers the other way around. So you're going to lose confidence because uh, at you, you're going to think, well, just a moment, I never said that. And it's going to become a he said, she said uh, situation, which kids get into. And the child can almost, in reverse, bully the teacher to favor them. So no, no teacher will ever be demanding because they're too scared that this child who might be themselves uh, a bit dare I say a bit too precious is going to say well just a moment this teacher's not treating me in the way that I want to be treated so I'm going to say that they're being a bully now I sense there's a lot of lot in the training which needs to make sure this doesn't happen is that is that the sense that you get well again I mean for me I'm I probably sound so tiresome on this but it's all about the research. So what I have found in the research is that children don't do that. They are very unlikely to ever um, refer to an adult, especially um, as doing something uh, abusive when they haven't done it. Like the research shows that false accusation, for example, among child populations is like almost zero. It's so rare. Right. Now, adults, on the other hand, if you've got parents who are, are making these kinds of accusations, I don't think it's too hard for other reasonable adults, um, like an educational authority of some kind, like a principal or the head of a sport organization, to quickly sort it out. So, for ex And this is why keeping records, for example, is super important. So if you have a pattern, like with a Harvey Weinstein again, like he's such a great example, because if there had been a running document that kept track of every single time a report came in, it would have taken maybe a year for them to figure out that they had this incredibly talented young man on their hands, but he really was behaving in very sexually harassing, inappropriate, destructive ways. He needed to get rehabilitated before he could come back. You know, it just takes a number of reports. If you're a teacher who has just a reputation with parents and children, or you're a coach who has a reputation with parents and children as being this wonderful person, and then some sort of outlier report comes in, it gets recorded, the sport head is just going to be like, well, you know, that sounds like an outlier report. Now, if they got another one, they might pause for a second. If a third came in, they might be like, hmm, because it's always a pattern. If somebody truly is abusive, as we talked about before, they can't help themselves. It's compulsive, obsessive, narcissistic type behavior. And unless they really seek help and, and get rehabilitated, they can't help themselves from doing it. So every single abuse um, case study I've read, whether you know it's like Division One coaches in the U.S. or high school coaches, or whatever, there's always a track record, a pattern of this behavior. So uh, one single outlier with a so-called precious kid, it's not going to hold any water. So I, I just don't see that happening, actually. I don't want to really ask, ask the same question again, but I wanted to put it a different in a different way. We are sometimes told as children that uh, bullies will only continue to bully you if you react. So 
if you're then passive, in your experience, does a passive response to a bully mean that they stop bullying you? Oh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I think, I mean, on the, I'm, I'm not an expert on child bullying amongst their own child populations. I never work on that. I only work on the power imbalance between an adult and child. That's the only type of bullying I look at and the only research that I look at. So I think when, when a child is bullying a child, um, they probably really need support. Both the child that's using bullying behavior, I see that as a huge cry for help. And that kid needs as much care and support and, and healing and help as the child who's the victim. And, right. and I think that they don't need to be necessarily brought together to sort it out together. It's an, that's an adult intervention issue and both kids need help when it's an adult that's doing it to a child. Um, I think that children need to be uh, taught how to report and they should be able to report safely and anonymously. So for example, one of the things that I say in my course um, I'm just finishing an online course on this, and I truly believe that one of the best things we can do as administrators or leaders in a sport organization or um, educational is to get surveys done. So every month or every two or three months, the administrator gets an anonymous survey done by the children and maybe by the parents as well if you if you have younger children or or teens even, and just take a litmus test of what's going on because. You know, people will say, oh, I had no idea that my behavior was harmful. That's one of the first things that they'll say if they have enough reports coming in about the bullying. And then, so this is what the teacher said at my son's school. The first thing they said was, oh, we had no idea that it was harmful. We're going to change. Um, and then it became more complicated. And they said, oh, we never did that was the next thing. But, and it's all on email, I might add. But anyways, um, the, uh, the thing to do is you get your surveys, you get anonymous safe surveys so that people feel that they truly can speak up and tell you what's going on. Because people who use bullying and abusive behavior, a lot of the time do it behind closed doors. They know enough not to do that behavior in front of parents or in front of other teachers. There's only certain people that will be allowed to witness it because they also have no problem with that type of behavior. But if you don't know that it's hurtful, why do you do it behind closed doors? And why don't you do it all the time? in front of your superiors, for example. So that's one of the big first questions we need to ask. Safe, anonymous reporting allows the leader to know what's going on behind closed doors. And that information is critical. So if you're getting multiple reports on your surveys that there's a problem with a particular teacher or coach or maybe a parent who's being abusive or, or children abusing other children, you've got that knowledge and that's when you start to get really proactive and, and halt the behavior and fix it. Thinking on that, a lot of it goes down to the support systems and how that information goes out. Because, of course, within, let's say, adults coaching children, in many amateur sports clubs, it is that uh, there are safe uh, in rugby, there are what's called safeguarding officers, and they are there to help support and what go, um, in what goes on and how it goes on. And I think sometimes sports coaches um, who are not involved with children on a uh, day in day out basis probably don't understand or probably feel nervous of the sorts of language that they're using and uh, you said right at the, the outset this difference between demanding and demeaning can be quite difficult to sometimes if you're not an expert work out the difference between the two so where do we need to f go to to get this uh, more support 
to be more effective. So those who are trying to help stamp it out or help identify where it's going on, where are they supposed to be looking? I think that um, there's there's certain types of workshops or team meetings that coaches can have or meetings with parents as well, where, you know, there's, that's the discussion that's on the table. You know, how many times do coaches sit down with their players and say, when I use X word, do you guys find that motivating or is that holding you back? And if I'm using that kind of language and it's not getting, it's not firing you up or making you feel proud or making you feel like you could do anything and that I've got your back and the team's got your back. If, if that's not how you're feeling, then what words could I use? I mean, I think kids, we don't ask them enough, you know, we, we don't like, it's really interesting. I interviewed a, um, an Olympic gold winning, multiple gold winning Olympic rower, and he's an Australian. And um, I asked him what his coaches were like. And he said, well, you know, as soon as we get to practice, the first question would be, how are you feeling? And, you know, sometimes you'd, you'd come to practice and you'd say, I don't feel great. I just had a fight with my wife or I, um, I, f- I think I have, I might have the flu or whatever it is, uh, or I failed in, in sc- and on an exam or something. And the coach tailors then your practice to adapt to how you're feeling. It'll be like, okay, well, let's, let's just do some light work today and let's wait till you feel stronger and better. And, you know, it's very human to human. And so there's, um, you know, the basketball, famous basketball coach, John Wooden, he was famous for his Mm -hmm. empathy. You know, he would, he would always want to know what the player was thinking and feeling. And that's how he would talk to him. And the research confirms this. So, you know, you read the talent code by Daniel Coyle, and he talks about how um, there's three things that make a talent hotbed. And that's what we all want, right? When we're coaching, we want a talent hotbed. Well, how do you make it? He says, the first thing is ignition the player has to believe in themselves. They have to believe that they can achieve the goal. And so if you light a fire in your players, they're going to believe they can do it. And then the next step is practice, deliberate practice, where you myelinate the brain. You you have the player practice over and over and over again in a really exciting, fun, scaffolded way so that they're constantly making mistakes and then adapting, adapting. And then the final thing is empathic coaching, that coaching where the coach knows exactly what the player needs to do from a great background of knowledge and wisdom in the sport or music or whatever it is themselves. And, you know, I don't think it's that hard for all of us to say, hey, maybe we need to talk to our players. Maybe we need to ignite a fire within them. Maybe we need to help them do deliberate practice and just know them as human beings and help them rise as high as they can in their sport. And I think what you've said there is very much when we talked before the podcast is that you wanted, uh, though there are lots of very sad stories and uh, that we hear around it and they're they're heartbreaking and uh, they just, they make you feel, how can we be upbeat about this? When in fact, it's not being upbeat, but there are ways forward. We can make everything a lot better by, as you say, this, this communication and essentially understanding the person in front of us and what language will work well with them. I mean, some will be more sensitive to the terms you're going to use and others will say, I don't mind if you're just a little bit tougher on me uh, today because I feel I just need to be G'd up. And you've, you've, you've created a sort of like almost a little, little contract between yourselves that this is going to work for us in this circumstance. And therefore, 
I'm sure there are other coaches who are listening in saying, I don't want to feel uncomfortable when I'm coaching. I want to be myself, yet I don't want to be regarded as someone who is perhaps bullying because I want to energize them. And that, there's, that, there's that difficult moment when someone isn't making enough effort and they aren't playing as hard as they, they should in a game situation. And they, they do need a metaphorical, it's not metaphorical, but a, 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 I'm trying to think of the, the term, a, a kick up the, uh, the kick up the backside. And what is that, what is that language which, which does it? Now you could say, come on, you could do better, or you might need to say something which is a, a bit tougher. Is, I sense that is the, the message you're giving is that let's be more upbeat about dealing with this as opposed to saying, well, woe is me, this goes on and the bullies should be punished. Yeah, I think, I think punishment is, I really think that's just a dead end. I don't think it works. I think we have a lot of, a lot of knowledge and witnessing of it that it doesn't work. But, you know, I think certainly in North America, I'm not sure this is true in the UK, but in North America, seven out of 10 kids quit sports at 13. And I mean, that's a staggering number. Oh, it's, it's very much the same across yeah. lots of countries. Been hearing a lot about it all this week in, in places like Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. So it happens everywhere, yeah. So what we have to say to ourselves, I think, is, you know, if we had 7 out of 10 kids quitting school at 13, we would be saying to ourselves, okay, I mean, our education system, I don't want to suggest that it's perfect, but it's it's not driving kids away. So I think in the sports world, it's really important for coaches and sport heads to, to come together and to figure out, and parents too, really, I mean, why is it that we're driving our kids away from sports? And then the second question simply is, what can we do differently? And if you ask kids, and the sad thing about this is we have this knowledge. National Alliance for Youth Sports did a major survey, I don't know how many years ago. It's been constantly replicated and repeated, and kids will tell you straight up. The reason they play sports is because sports are so much fun. Well, we adults, there's something, we've got some kind of a problem because we strip the fun out of sports. So maybe the kid is not, they're not giving it their all. And maybe there's a reason for that. And we don't even know what it is. But making them feel bad about it or making them feel like you see that they're not doing well and you're going to call them out on it and maybe in front of their peers even, Maybe, maybe it's just not worth it because it's going to drive them away from their sport. And the big thing is we want to keep kids in sports because sports is one of the very best things they can do for their brain. We want smart kids. We want healthy, smart kids. Well, sports is one of the best ways to do that. So let's figure out a way to keep 10 out of 10 kids in sports. And you know what? It's so fascinating. It's 13 when children go into adolescent brain development. But we aren't taught anything about it. How many coaches out there are taught that when you turn 13, your brain changes in such a radical way and it becomes highly impulsive, it gets completely compelled by risk-taking and it's reward-seeking and it's incredibly emotional and hypersensitive. So if that's what's going on for our 13 to 24-year-olds, why don't we adapt our style to really work with the adolescent brain? And, and make it, this, so this is a course I just finished, it's called Working with the Adolescent Brain, because I'm really trying to get coaches and teachers and parents up to speed on, we don't know anything about the adolescent brain, but if we did, we could work with it instead of against it. Loads of 
positive messages on how we can deal with it. And you're leading the way um, in, in the areas you're in. So for the listeners who are uh, interested in taking this to the next stage, uh, where can they find out more about what you're doing and get some of the materials that you're talking about? Um, my website is neuro, as in brain, so neuro um, paradigm just run right together. So www.neuroparadigm.com. And I just, I do tons of workshops and speak at engagements and online courses. And I just don't hesitate to contact me directly. I love to work with people. I love working with coaches. Um, I was, I was very honored to be on this podcast and get to share some of the discoveries I've made. Cause I really do think we can make change. Well, it's, it's been it's been an inspirational podcast because it's not the sort of podcast I've done before. And we talked beforehand and I, I was quite worried, I think, because normally I'm, uh, we can joke and laugh our way through a podcast. And yet this is obviously a very serious topic. And you, you reassured me at the start that we would be very positive. And I think we are, we come out with some very positive outcomes in my mind of what I would do next in my own coaching and how I'm going to take these ideas and try and put them through in everything that we do and communicate more with the players, talk to more players in terms of their feelings, which I think good coaches do anyway. And also then help support those who are, as you say, struggling themselves to understand what the difference and where the line is drawn because they, they don't know any different and they almost refuse to take that information on board and and change their behaviors so jen it's it's been brilliant i've 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 learned a lot i'm sure everyone who's listened in has learned a lot so i will put uh the links to your site and to uh where they can find out more information in the the notes below so again i've really come away from this a lot more comfortable about my approach yet also very aware that I've got to be very proactive out there in uh, promoting what we can do better. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Dan. Thanks a lot for having me on the podcast. Just a couple of end notes to say that this podcast is available on the rugbycoachweekly.net site. So go along there and click on the podcast button to find out more podcasts from a whole range of different coaches on different subjects. So thank you very much all for listening and look forward to speaking to you all very soon. Thanks for listening to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.